0: This is Kim Nicolaitis with Advent Christian Voices uh, broadcasting here uh, live at this time, Fourth um, of June, Monday, from Waikiki in uh, Hawaii. Uh, glad to be back with you. Thank you for those of you who are have been keeping up with uh, our little journey through. Uh, Gospel of Luke, and um, today we've reached the end of the chapter, or we will reach the end of the chapter. Actually, I'm not going to spend as much time as I'd like on this passage, but this is a tremendous passage that we have here in Zechariah, uh, where Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, gives a, a prophecy. So Luke ends the first his first chapter with uh, that particular prophecy. You remember <clears throat> this was after. Zechariah his ability to speak was uh, miraculously and instantaneously healed. I actually believe his hearing would had never been silenced during those nine months his wife was pregnant with when his wife was pregnant with his son uh, John the Baptist or John who would become known as John the Baptist but Nonetheless, losing his ability to speak was itself, I thought, a very appropriate and sufficient chastisement for the doubts that he had expressed to the angel Gabriel earlier in the chapter. And we can well imagine that during this time, his desire to speak being pent up as it was had in his mind been given sufficient time to accumulate his uh, thoughts on the events that were transpiring there before him. Very, very significant events. And he had now uh, accommodated Mary at his home for the past three months while she was pregnant with the savior of the world and would have been well aware of the visit that uh, she'd received from uh, Gabriel as well and the implications of the words that he gave to her. So Luke uh, very appropriately chooses to include these prophetic words of uh, Zechariah to show basically that the Gospels and the New Testament and the religion of Christianity, first and foremost, is not uh, something extraordinarily new in how God has always been dealing with his people. Christianity is not a new religion, which just suddenly popped up out of the blue. And as such is some kind of a weird offshoot of Judaism. In other words, Christianity is not a religion which had its beginnings a mere 2,000 years ago with the appearance of Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. Christianity is a faith and a system of belief, if you understand it correctly, that is a dynamic growing body, has a dynamic growing body of evidence whose roots go all the way back to the creation of the world and a very progressive revelation of God's continuing interaction with his creation, of which the Old Testament and the pre-incarnate people of God form merely one small cross-section of time in it. So what Zechariah's prophecy here tells us is how all these events um, are connected to all of what has been already said in the Old Testament and are in fact a fulfillment of them and confirmations of them. Now as a priest, Zechariah is thoroughly schooled in the covenantal theology of the Old Testament and he recognizes immediately how what has happened to his wife Elizabeth and what has happened to Mary in their both their miraculous conceptions had as previously told and prophesied through Gabriel's messages to them are fulfillments of specific Old Testament promises which God made to his people long ago and what that means for those who are members of his covenantal community. So maybe we should just pause and read through what that what he has to say about it. So I'm going to just read from um, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to the end of the chapter. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of the salvation of his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public experience appearance to Israel. So right here we see with this um, allusion to the sunrise that shall visit us, he's referring to the very last thing that Malachi says uh, when uh, the sun shall dawn upon them, uh, indicating the arrival of the Messiah, which was to be the next great uh, event in uh, scriptural prophecy. First, we note that he is speaking for the most part just to add uh, to just such a covenantal, covenantal community there who have been gathered around him, to celebrate John's circumcision and naming ritual, if you will. And he's also likely holding the baby John in his arms as he directs the end of his prophecy to him, as well as all the while being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in mentioning the covenant which God had established with their forefathers, he actually specifically refers to Abraham's covenant, but here he starts with David knowing that Mary was in the Davidic line. Now, he was not yet aware that she would ever, in fact, actually get married to Joseph, although she may, uh, you know, very well have been betrothed to him. You might remember how in Matthew's gospel there was some initial question about That marriage actually occurring once Joseph discovered that Mary was with child. But in any case, from Zechariah's perspective, it didn't at that point even really matter whether or not Mary married, uh, Joseph uh, Joseph married uh, Mary or not, being as she was already in the Davidic line. And that's perhaps why we have a separate lineage given to us here in Luke a little later in third chapter which surely must have been Mary's own ancestry, if anyone wanted to question it. Once Mary and Joseph were married, Jesus then became the adopted son of Joseph and therefore also legally the descendant of David through Joseph as well. And hence his lineage is also provided for us in Matthew's Gospel. The primary and the initial covenant Zechariah, in any case, is referring to here is the one established with David. And so to understand what he's saying, it's necessary to go back and take a little closer look at what was entailed in the Davidic covenant and why it mattered so much to Zechariah here. Now, you recall, David was the king of Israel about a thousand years prior to the birth of Jesus. He was also a prophet and one who had composed a large Portion of the Psalter. Many of the Psalms, in fact, were prophetic of the Messiah, what we call Messianic Psalms. And the history of his reign is well documented in the books, uh, uh, starting with Samuel and uh, going on to First and Kings, First and Chronicles. You may recall David was the youngest of son of his father's eight sons, I believe. His father Jesse when he slew the giant Goliath in the battlefield gaining for him much renown in Israel but at the same time uh, the intense envy of Israel's first king Saul which resulted in his becoming a refugee for several years before finally ascending to the throne when Saul and his sons were killed in battle by the Philistines and David actually had been anointed by Samuel the prophet uh, to become king many years earlier uh, Finally was acknowledged as God's choice uh, for the throne by all of Israel, and he led them subsequently through many more military conquests and secured the stability and the preeminence of the nation of Israel as a nation in the world of nations. And David, David was described as a man after God's own heart, and although he was certainly not without flaws. He was one who nonetheless, unlike his predecessor on the throne, did not allow his position to go to his head so that he did not become immune to a realization of an awareness of his faults and of his need for contrition and repentance. And uh, as we can see uh, in Psalm 51, which he composed, for instance, So when confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan, his repentance was heartfelt and his love for God was genuine despite the rather severe chastisements he subsequently suffered for his sins. As he understood the nature of justice. It was later David's great desire to build a temple for the Lord since throughout his tenure and for many years prior to that, The Ark of the Lord, which represented the presence of God with Israel, had been housed in the tabernacle, really just a large tent, built by Moses several centuries earlier, and by now quite tattered and torn. Certainly worse for the weather, no doubt. Besides, Israel had been established as a nation already in the land of Israel, given to them by God. They no longer were an itinerant clan of tribes, people, wandering around in the desert or on the foothills of Palestine. And God's dwelling place could and should actually be fixed where he wanted it to be, the place where he said he wanted his name to dwell, which was on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Well, when David expressed his desire to build such a permanent house or a temple for the Lord, his prophet, Nathan, encouraged him to do whatever he wanted. However, that very night, uh, the prophet received... That is, Nathan received revelation from God that such an endeavor was not something uh, God wanted David to do. One doesn't just go off and do something as significant as that without first seeking the Lord's will on the matter. After all, it was the Lord whose house this was to be. So both Nathan and David were mildly rebuked, I guess you could say. Suggesting such a thing. God doesn't need to have anyone build a house for him. And besides, even if anyone would do it, it could not be David, since he was a man of blood, having taken the lives of hundreds, if not even thousands, of men, certainly through his leadership. However, when God took away from David the right to build a house for him, he also gave to him something in return. And what God gave to David was what we know as the, the Davidic Covenant, which was really something significantly more important, more valuable than merely having the right and opportunity to build such a temple. So the Davidic Covenant is given to us in 2 Samuel 7. There it says that God will build a house for David. And after David has died, God will raise up from his offspring a king who will establish his kingdom. He will build a house in the name of the Lord. The Lord will establish his kingdom forever so that the house of David and his throne will be established forever. Uh, And the Lord will never remove from him his steadfast love as he did from King Saul before him. And when Nathan gave this message to David, we know he understood it to mean a universal kingdom because in verse 9 of 19, rather, of that chapter, he said that this He understood that this was God's will, not just for Israel, but for the entire race of mankind. So when Zechariah is talking about how God has promised to exalt the horn of David, he is referring to his political power to deliver the people of God from their enemies. And for this, he has an enormous amount of biblical precedent, starting with Moses. In fact, there was a time in which mimicked in many ways very period when Moses first showed up, it was like a distant mirror in terms of how God's chosen covenant people were being treated by Gentile and pagan oppressors, and hence their expectation of how once again God would also act in like manner in their deliverance according to his promise. Although uh, in their own land now supposedly the Israelites had not known any real extended period of sovereignty over it for the past 400 years or more uh, as was the case uh, when God appeared to Moses although then they were living in Egypt you know uh, under the dominion of Pharaoh <laughs> for some 400 plus years before raised the Lord raised up Moses to deliver them out of that oppressive uh, regime. So the conditions for them now under the Romans and before that under the Greeks or Persians or Babylonians hadn't fared much better for that, at least in a uh, for an equivalent number of years. And in the minds at that time of many Jews, uh, it was high time for God to act if indeed it was ever his intention of doing so and of honoring the covenant he had earlier established First with Abraham, the father of their nation, and later with David. Of course, the means by which that would happen has always been that he would raise up a deliverer. And that was precisely what God had promised in his word. And so the elation expressed by Zechariah here is really not so much on a personal level, as was the case, for instance, with Mary earlier in the chapter, but actually in behalf of his entire nation. Of course, Zechariah had no way of knowing that the deliverance which was promised in the Messiah, whom his own son would foreshadow and be a forerunner of, was uh, would be dependent upon the nation's willingness to accept him as their God-appointed king, which, as it happened, was not to be the case. And so the deliverance would have to be put on hold as it has now been for the past 2,000 plus years or so, due to Israel's failure to recognize their own king. It's not to say that such a deliverance is still in the wings and is still due to occur, which presumably may yet happen, but the terms and the conditions for that depend on whether or not Israel will recognize Jesus for who he really is. As a whole, that has not yet happened, but the Bible indicates that it will happen one day. Zechariah, that is the book of Zechariah, says that he will look upon the one, they will look upon the one whom they've pierced and mourn for him as an only son. So it would seem for us the best way to advance that day would be to do whatever we can to evangelize the uh, nation of Jews. But in any case, God's in control of all these things. It wasn't as if this took God by surprise. Actually, it would have been impossible for the Jews to even recognize Jesus for who he really was, unless their eyes had been opened supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. So this was all part of God's divine plan, really, to open the door of salvation to the entire world. For as long as Jesus is being rejected by his own people, that part of the price of our redemption, by the way, which he had to pay, had to make it possible, has made it possible, I should say, rather, for that invitation now to be extended to the Gentiles are all who will come in. And as we can see, that invitation has been accepted to a degree so far by almost every people group there is in the whole world, in accordance with the prophecies of the prophets of the old, uh, Testament, who told us that eventually there would be a group of people comprising individuals from every people group all across the globe. So when the final tally of the Gentiles is complete, the Bible tells us that at that time God will open the eyes of his own people so that those who respond appropriately to his invitation to them can be saved and cleansed from all their sin through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. At that time, Jesus will be installed as the legitimate king of both Jews and Gentiles to rule over them universally, forever. So this is a fulfillment of that promise to David that a son would reign on his throne forever. That fulfillment, had as so many prophecies in the Old Testament do, had also what we call a near fulfillment in the glorious earthly reign of Solomon, but Solomon died, and the kingdom was subsequently split up, so we know that wasn't meant to be the full and final fulfillment of that covenantal promise to David. That would only come with the advent of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and it apparently will not even come in its completeness, completeness, I should say, until Jesus returns in great power and glory, and after the Jews recognize him as their legitimate king, which he rightly is. So, actually, Zechariah, John's Baptist uh, father here, his hopes are correct, but they will just have to wait until then to see their complete fulfillment. Now, this is not the only covenantal promise which Zechariah alludes to in his prophecy. There are actually a couple more that he sees as being fulfilled in the arrival of these two miracle births. (coughs) Excuse me. He's also, he refers, as I mentioned, to Abraham, the father of their nation with whom God established a covenant. And that covenant is found in Genesis 12, 15, and uh, 22, reiterated again through his sons Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. And that covenant is also universal in much of what it's promised in the New Testament. We discover that the Abrahamic covenant has implications that extend to the Gentiles, since everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is deemed as a spiritual offspring or descendant in that case of Abraham. And we are his children through faith, and it was, in any case, Abraham's faith, God, that resulted in his being deemed as righteous before him. His faith, you recall, was credited to his account as righteousness, I believe, in chapter 15 of Genesis and there are also other aspects, however, of the Abrahamic covenant which would appear to be more national. For instance, one of the things promised to Abraham was the land on which he lived, but never personally owned, apart from the cemetery, I should say, where his, he and his wife were buried. And that's described in Genesis 15 as extended from the Wadi of Egypt, that is, not the Nile, but the Wadi separating Egypt from Palestine all the way up to the Euphrates, and probably from the Mediterranean, at least, to the Jordan. But some places across the Jordan, since the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh stayed on the eastern side of the Jordan. In any case, the most important thing we need to remember about the covenant which God established with Abraham and to his offspring was that he was going to be the father of many nations, and uh, and in the promised seed of, you know, if, as long as those choose to exercise faith in the promised seed of Abraham. So that means that we repent of the faith that we may have exercised before we knew about Jesus. And henceforth, we put our faith no longer in ourselves or in whatever idols we may have erected in our hearts. So if you want to know what those idols in your hearts are, you just have to ask yourself the question, what are your values? What do you love? What is most important to you? What is, what is it that you just can't live without? What gets you up in the morning? What drives you, really? What are, what are your underlying, your basic underlying motivations for everything else you do? If you can be honest enough with yourself to answer those questions, then you'll know who your real God is. For some people, it's their image. For others, it's their appetites, whether culinary or sexual, or some are addicted to wine or spirits. Some may be security, comfort, pleasure, excitement, maybe material things. For some, it's just plain money. For some, it's status. For many, it's the approval of others. I mean, One may think it to be their appearances and so they spend a lot of time and energy working on those things to make themselves more attractive or beautiful. However, that only remains a superficial reason why they may seek to be beautiful. The underlying reason is they're seeking the approval of others or someone at least who they believe cares about those things. Some may actually do it just because they want to be at least outwardly beautiful but whatever it is that is the most important underlying reason why you do the things you do, that can be said to be your idol, your God, that which you truly worship. Worship is simply uh, means ascribing worth <clears throat> or value to something, and we're all guilty. Of it. We cannot live without doing it. That is the primary reason we've been created, in order to worship. And being, as we are most fundamentally worshiping beings, worship is what we do every moment of our lives in one fashion or another. Therefore, ask yourself the question, what is it or who is it that you worship? And if you're not sure, then ask yourself why you do ultimately do the things you do. Even if you're just trying to do it to survive, then you could be said to be simply a worshiper of life. But generally, you want to live for some reason. And if that's the case, in any case, I have some good news. Uh, There is something that is intrinsically and infinitely of greater value than even life itself. And You know what that is? It's the author of life. It's the life giver, because he's not just the giver of life. He's also the giver of everything else that goes along with life, gives meaning and purpose to your life. So you should learn how. Worship him. And then you just adjust your life so ever so gradually, depending on where you are, to worship him more and more with each passing day and likewise to begin worshiping the things that he gives, relatively speaking, less and less. So in this case, in this sense, Abraham can be said to be the father of our faith. He's the father of everyone who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of the way to do that is to start becoming familiar with his word, not merely so that you can know what the Bible says, but so you can know the one who is the ultimate author of what the Bible says. The fact that Zechariah refers to Abraham here is important because Jesus is a fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham in that Jesus uh, is the lamb, for instance, which God provided to take the place of of Abraham's son. You know, the ram which God initially provided after Abraham took his son Isaac up onto the mountain Moriah to sacrifice there as a burnt offering didn't actually fully satisfy the requirements of the request that God made to Abraham to sacrifice his son. The lamb was merely a substitute that was given in place of Isaac that enabled the debt to be put on hold until there would be one given that would, in fact, have a value from both God and Abraham's perspective that would be equivalent to his son. No animal, no matter how precious, could be seen as equivalent in value to one's son. But only Jesus, who was willing to lay down his own life, could be said to be the real substitute. And that wasn't to come for another 2,000 years after the initial offering on Mount Moriah. But the important thing Uh, at that time, from God's perspective, was the intention. Abraham was willing to make the sacrifice of his own son, if need be, because God had already promised him, for one, that his seed would be through Isaac, so it didn't matter what Abraham did or didn't do. God would not be, or at least his word could not be abrogated, And that meant that if Abraham actually did go through with the sacrifice and slew his son there on the altar, God would have to raise him up again. As it says in Hebrews, Abraham had faith that God could and would, in fact, do just that, if necessary, to fulfill his covenantal promises to his word. And we can all and should, in fact, have the same confidence in the word of God as well, since it has been more than sufficiently tested already. Before our own eyes, many times, over and over, if we're only willing to look and see. And there is yet one other covenant that Zechariah refers to here of the Old Testament, made by God, which this prophecy he, he gives implies, at least in its reference to the tender mercies of God and the forgiveness of our sins. And this is what is generally known as the new covenant. God actually promised in the book of Jeremiah at the time when God was in the process of expressing his wrath or beginning to express his wrath against Israel for their unfaithfulness to the covenants which he had already established with them. The full satisfaction and extirpation of that wrath was still evidently, uh, even yet in the process of being fully consumed on Israel by virtue of the fact that they've remained all this time still under the dominion of a foreign nation. Yet the hope of Israel remained in the tender mercies of God, which meant that despite his chastisement upon them, which they so imminently deserve, God would eventually forgive them and restore them to a position of responsibility in the world as his representatives. And this promise of a new covenant in the Old Testament found uh, during that period, some 580 years earlier when they were just about to experience God's outpouring of wrath upon them and their imminent exile and subjugation. to All these foreign powers was softened in the promise he then expressed through Jeremiah that said that God would remove their hearts of stone and give them new hearts, essentially on which his laws would be written. In other words, on tablets of flesh. And then they would truly become his people and he would truly become their God. So how would it would be possible to to do that remained to be seen but in retrospect we can look back and see that it was also through the messiah it would be through his willingness to take our sin upon himself and pay the penalty for us on the cross just so that god could now truly forgive our sins without compromising his own justice and view of the fact of the seriousness of sin in the eyes of god nothing less than death would satisfy such a crime and since we are all sinners, we are all under the sentence of death, whether we know it or not. Being under the sentence of death by God carries with it some rather severe consequences, one of them being being blinded to the nature of our own condition. And When one is blind to his own condition, he is certainly in no position to heal himself. That is unfortunately the very pitiable condition of everyone in the world today who is without Christ. It's The situation with every single one of us from the moment of our conception, when we first come into the world on account of the sin already of our first parents, we each inherit that condition. And until and unless we are born again, we remain in that extremely unenviable position. We cannot even see our most desperate need, which is to be reconciled with our creator. And that will never happen until we bend our knees before Jesus. Once we do that, In our hearts, sincerely, we are totally and completely forgiven for every sin we've ever committed or ever will commit on the simple and sole basis of Christ's atoning blood in our behalf. And there's nothing to do in that regard more than that. But until we do that, we remain in a condition of enmity and hostility towards our creator and under his just condemnation. So we have to repent and turn to him and to him alone. Forgiveness can be offered to us in no other name, and there is no other name under heaven, whereby man can be saved. Those who don't avail themselves of this forgiveness should be the object of our very great pity and compassion, no matter what they've done or may be in the process of attempting to do They are indeed the most pitiable subjects the world has ever seen when seen in light of this most desperate condition therein. And we should have that outlook towards them, and that should motivate us to want to do something about it. Well, that brings us to the end of today's message, so I'm just going to say a quick, quick prayer. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for not being more compassionate to the lost who are around us. Indeed, were we ever to obey your commandment to love others as you have loved us we would be more than willing to commit every resource at our disposal to their rescue and deliverance help us to repent of our lack of love in this regard and henceforth to live in the light and knowledge of your love for the lost and be willing to tell whatever it takes to do whatever it takes to tell them that jesus loves them for we pray in his glorious name amen okay this is Kim, Nick, Whitey's, and uh, signing out once again with Advent Christian Voices from here in Hawaii. God bless you, and thanks for spending some time.